former U.S. Army paratrooper, historian, and conspiracy analyst, Tony Arterburn, joined by top researchers and guests, exploring the depths of our hidden history. Expose the crimes and cover-ups that plague our civilization and planet and patrol the borders of our reality. 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 From the parapolitical to the paranormal in the psychological war for your body, soul, and mind. Be a paratruther. is something that shall be overcome. Man is a rope tied between beast and overman, a rope over an abyss. What is great in man is that he is a bridge and not an end. That is the theme from 2001, A Space Odyssey, based off of the work by Richard Strauss of Thus Spake Zarathustra, the masterpiece of the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. That's a quote that I just read from his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is talking about the overman, that man is a bridge and not a goal, which if you look into the symbology and what lies behind Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, which we're going to get into, um, even foretelling uh, artificial intelligence, which you could argue that's what he was uh, warning or uh, prophesizing about. And uh, we're going to get into that. This is Paratruther. Again, ladies and gentlemen, I brought back the A-Team. We've been planning this show for a while. I've talked about it on uh, the Arterburn Radio Transmission and other outlets. We were going to do a breakdown of the symbology uh, the hidden history, if you will, of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. And uh, Mr. Anderson actually has brought this up many times. And it's interesting, Mr. Anderson, I, if you recall, when we went to visit the grave of, of Bill Cooper on the 20th anniversary of him being murdered by the police uh, there in Eager, Arizona, um, we talked about this. We talked a yeah. little bit about Stanley Kubrick in 2001, and I think this is a good follow-up and extension because that's where your mind went, and that was uh, over two years ago. So uh, glad to have you here. Glad to have uh, Chris Graves and uh, Researcher Without Peer. I don't know what I would do without Chris. He sent me a ton of links on this and uh, certainly uh, really interested in, in seeing what he has to say. But uh, Mr. Anderson, welcome back to uh, your own show. What you know, you this is your baby. You wanted to talk about this, but I did too. I'm glad that you you've pushed this so we would have this subject matter because it is loaded with what we're seeing today uh, in the headlines with the and the mass adoption of artificial intelligence and the uh, the breakdown of what Frederick Nietzsche. I'm going to quote Nietzsche a few times in the show. I'm I'm sure, but the he called the transvaluation of all values, which is basically uh, everything being laid to waste and starting over again. Um, so let's start with you. What's what's on your mind as we kind of go into the opening rounds of this, this paratrooper? Well, first off, I have the greatest enthusiasm for this podcast, Tony, as, as Hal <laughs> might say. Um, <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to this. As you mentioned, uh, I think the reason this came up um, as it relates to Bill Cooper is because when we went to Eager, Arizona, first episode and Chris, you post a link to it that he had regarding mystery Babylon was the symbology 
um, just at the beginning of 2001, A Space Odyssey. So I think it's very interesting. I've read the book just because there's some comparisons that, that they're very specific and there was intent behind the differences Kubrick made in the movie versus the book, which was being written concurrently when they were writing the screenplay for 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I brought this up to you. I mean, just right out the gate in the book, um, I, I have it open just so I can not botch the sentence, but it says, chapter one, the road to extinction, extinction. And the sentence is, the drought had lasted now for 10 million years and the reign of the terrible lizards had long since ended. <laughs> so we were talking about that, right? And um, you said dino um, sore actually translates to terrible lizard. And it's true. Dino means terrible and Soros means lizard. And I was like, where have I heard that name? George Lizard. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I wish he would have named his uh, his first son Dynamo, like the guy in, uh, what was that called? The Running Man? It could have been Dynamo <laughs> <Yeah>. Soros. <laughs> no, Jesse Ventura. Yeah. yeah. Captain Dynamo. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, I don't want to hog too much, but there's a lot of stuff I, I noticed but as you mentioned, really the, the the main point of the book is talking about artificial intelligence and their trip to go find TMA2 or Tycho Magnetic Anomaly 2. And so there are some differences between the book where it's on a moon of Saturn, which is a very interesting moon, versus the movie where they changed it to Jupiter. But um, yeah, Chris, I'll, I'll let you um, put some of your thoughts in there so I don't hog any more time. Yeah, I was always uh, no. Believe me, uh, I'd rather hear you listen to you guys. To be honest with you, and so I could learn a thing or two about a thing or two. Um, but yeah, no. Um, yeah, Stanley Kubrick has always been uh, fascinating to me, uh, just as a human being, as far as we know. Because um, <laughs> uh, I don't know, like there's a lot of theories about how it ties into the Apollo moon missions. Right. And that possibly some of the footage from 2001, A Space Odyssey, was utilized for some of those missions. And that's for a different show, but that's what drew me to this film in particular years ago. And yeah, almost like with Hal is basically the predecessor for Skynet and all these other uh, artificial intelligence scenarios and fiction. And yeah, Kubrick and that. and um, Arthur C. Clarke. Um, I, I think a lot of people don't know, I don't think, that there were there were four books in the series. And I think right. the last one was called 3001, The Final Odyssey. And of all people, Tom Hanks wanted to adapt it as a, a director, like uh, about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Actually, no, I think it was 1999. And uh, it became, a, I think, a sci-fi channel TV movie, I think. But, uh, yeah, no, they were originally... Probably for... better off for it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Hanks, Hanks also did, back in the late 90s, he did From the Earth to the Moon for HBO, yeah. if you recall, Chris. That's right. Hanks is a, Hanks is a big establishment uh, guy. I mean, anything that the establishment does, any kind of establishment narrative, Hanks is right there. If you, know, if you go back, I mean, I... I didn't really notice that when I was a kid, but right. it, it's it's so obvious now. I mean, whether it's the JFK assassination or the, the all, space all program or yeah. right, it's just it's Hanks is I mean, always and there's there's tons of you can get an alternative media about Tom Hanks. I'm not going to do that. Right. I understand well, uh, what I'm just saying. I was pointing him out just because he got the covid typewriter. You know, have all these other things, you know. Oh, yeah. When, when wasn't he on the Lolita Express, too? I mean, isn't he on the flight logs? I, mean, I, I think he wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I thought he was because I remember discussing with my dad and he's like, that's true. When everything's said and done, he's going to wish he was on a deserted island talking to a beach ball. <laughs> well, there's something <laughs> weird with like the, the, this, the symbol of, of Wilson, the, the volleyball, like, what, right. yeah. certain yeah. people's like Ellen had that and other celebrities had that. What, what, I don't know. I don't know. He's something like, weird with Hank. Blood stain on the ball. Yeah. yeah Wilson. Yeah. And he has all. <laughs> He's like taking pictures of like random shoes on the sidewalk, like real creepy stuff. And I just wanted to point, <laughs> point that out, you know? Uh, yeah. It was disappointing. Well, yeah. Back in the day, it was, you know, looking back, I, I was a fan of the man's work and looking back now it's, uh, 
very disappointing. But. Well, I always kind of lump him together with Spielberg for some reason. And if you recall, I mean, the longest continuous shot movie ever was Eyes Wide Shut. And I always heard that was a terrible movie, but I actually love it. It's just kind of dark. You've got to not watch it, you know, on a loop because yeah. it, it does mess <laughs> with you after a while. But his final screening of it, four days after he showed it to the movie executives, that's when Kubrick died. Yes. Right. And th they know the movie was heavily edited and I have no way of confirming it, but you read enough of people, their accounts, and they say there was a lot more having to do with pedophilia, which was something that he put in a lot of his movies. I mean, beginning with Lolita, actually. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, uh, Kubrick was also working on AI, AI, which probably would have been even better. And who took over it? Spielberg. Spielberg. Yeah. Yep. Well, you know so. that um, Eyes Wide Shut. That was all the weird scenery with the ma the costumes and kind of the pagan ritual and all that stuff. That was shot inside of a Rothschild mansion. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't I don't know if you guys knew that, but yeah. And Kubrick died right after it. You can Art Kubrick was clearly a genius, and there's hidden things all throughout his movies. You know, go back to The Shining, which Mr. Anderson and I have watched several times, if, if not other Kubrick films, but for sure we watched The Shining uh, when we probably shouldn't have, like too late at night, like should have gone to bed, but we were going to watch The Shining. And, um, you know, you look at that. Stephen King hated that, by the way. Stephen King wrote yeah. The Shining and he hated, he hated Kubrick's interpretation of it because I think there is something to the documentary Room 237, yes. if I'm getting that right. You are. Um, yes. I, I watched that years ago. Yeah. So many weird things in The Shining, like you know, we're going to talk. So w whether you're talking, it's weird that there's so many things related to the moon. And then if you go to some of Kubrick's work, uh, like the Danny in The Shining, the little kid has this Apollo 11 that's sweatshirt right. that's and it's embroidered. And they looked up later. That was not like something that was mass. That was a custom made shirt. They made sure that Danny had this Apollo 11 sweater. Yeah. And uh, of course, the room represents right. 237,000 miles away, supposedly. Right. The moon. They call it the moon room. Uh, and so it's like a confessional right. of some kind, like in all the, the blood coming out of the elevators and like the it, there's the, and there's so many different the tang that's inside of the. The that, pantry, you know, with like astronaut the, strength that's tank. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We can't cover everything from the, the right. documentary. Well, and did, I did hadn't know intended to. Go ahead. Did, did you all know this one? Because I didn't know it for a while. And I don't think it's covered in that documentary. But, you know, when Jack's supposedly losing it and he's all work, no play, make Jack a dull boy. It's not LL. It's A11 on the typewriter. So... A11 Apollo 11. It's they're not oh. L's, they're ones. So he just did he I did weird that. stuff like that. And one of yeah, I didn't either. Um, but look it up. And the, and the, the other and the typewriter's got that, that German eagle was, on it. That's right. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's, there's so, and, so and many weird things. If it's not a confessional, he was clearly right. playing with playing with the future audience that would find these things. That's how I feel yeah. about it, you know. Well, he's—I mean, you're very much into the—he's very much into the works of Frederick Nietzsche. Again, using "Thus Spoke Zarathustra," what an obscure thing! You know, is this again? It was based off Nietzsche wrote "Thus Spoke Zarathustra" in the 1880s, I believe, and then it was—I'm uh, going to read the—I have it pulled up here. Uh, also, spoke Zarathustra. Uh, it was in the in this Richard Strauss. It was composed in 1896 and inspired by Frederick Nietzsche's philosophical work. Thus spoke Zarathustra, which Zarathustra is based on the um, Persian god or mess, uh, messianic figure Zoroaster, who, if in history, was like the one of the first um, figures to show a dichotomy between good and evil. And uh, so Nietzsche used that. That was one of his major works was Beyond Good and Evil. He talked about what well, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, which was the transvaluation of all values. And it's interesting in this time that we live in and there's people are losing equilibrium, losing ties to history and heroes and tradition. And, you know, we're told that there is no absolute truth, right? There is no 
there, you know, there's, there's 300 genders. There's no, everything is fluid and nothing is real. And like, you just losing that balance. And I think there's something interesting about Kubrick in 1968, putting out this film. When you look at it through the lens of today and you really sit back, it is, how would you have understood it in 68? I mean, it, it, very, very few minds I'm sure did like, and, and you look at, we, there's a great clips and you sent over, uh, some great stuff uh, and, uh, and some sources, Chris, but uh, Bill Cooper, for one, talked about this a lot and because uh, he got it. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. No, it's a whole presentation. Uh, I I had totally forgotten about that when uh, I was able to find that link. But yeah, I, there's a lot of things that he was pointing out. I always wondered why uh, Kubrick... I, I always wondered why the the year 1984 wasn't utilized with uh, this project. And then when you look at the actual year 2001 and what fiascos happened during that, it makes me look back in hindsight. Like, it, it's a weird thing. Like, you would think it would be 1984 if we're going to go with all the Orwellian type things that, that happened um, in the year 2001 later on. You know, post 9-11, Anthrax, Patriot Act, all the wars. But it just makes me go back and go, why wasn't he? Because maybe there was some kind of, uh, you know, new, some significant numerology. Numerology. I was going to say new. Yeah. Well, I um, think so. I mean, I and I've been yeah. talking about I've mentioned this a couple of times in different podcasts in my show, but it always intrigued me once I learned that the film 2001 a space odyssey came out in 1968 uh that was the year they broke ground on the world trade center and it's exactly 33 years um, by the way i was reading i was reading in the wikipedia which i don't know I mean, if you want to trust that source but uh, according to wikipedia richard strauss's uh composition of this the, the music for 2001 is exactly 33 minutes but if, if you go if you look at kubrick and, and again, this is the the adept, the elite. This is something that you know, Bill Cooper talked about a lot. Anybody who's really paying attention, they have their own their own codes and their own their own religion, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they do, in my opinion, um, rituals and a lot of these things that are built into the system. Like, for example, 1968, 2001, A Space Odyssey comes out. So does, you know, they have the. Uh, groundbreaking on the World Trade Center, so exactly 33 years out. But it's also the same year they released uh, 911 service into the United States. So it's kind of like a magic, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a dialing in. So, you know, if you're in an emergency, if there's something bad happening, you're hitting 911. Right. So exactly 33 years, uh, you know, from, and again, to hit 2001. So it's, it's interesting that they got the year, right? It's programmed yeah. into the system, whether Kubrick knew that or not. I mean, I'm not saying that he did. I'm just saying it's if you're look if you're stepping back and looking at this in the big picture wise, it's strange, right? All the things that are programmed into that. And then, you know, David Icke wrote a great book called The Trigger. And I'm going to be in New York uh, here next month on the anniversary of 9-11 with some great speakers. I mean, I'm, I'm on a magnificent panel talking about 9-11 and the history of uh, what led up to that and what's happened after. But there's 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 a lot there with what happened after not where the divergence of our civilization, the power that the governments have, uh, the, the leading by fear, uh, you know, this because we we were, you know, if you look at uh, the movie and Mr. Anderson, know this is better than anybody. If you look at the movie, The Matrix, what does Mr. What is Mr. Smith? Agent Smith, what does he tell Mr. Anderson about uh, this is the height of civilization in 1999? Look out the window, you know, and so there's something to that. We we have lost. They call it the wasn't it? Isn't it called the stalled century, Chris? Is that what they call it now? I think it was a stalled century, too. Yeah, that's also, when how came to life in the book 1999, by the way. Just is as, it really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is also it's, another yeah. interesting year as well. Yeah, yeah. yes, it is. In, in the movie, it's 1992, but the book, it's 1999. So, oh, so what? What's wonder why he would change it? Yeah, why I don't we? know. So, so there's another thing, Chris. Tony and I were discussing um, yesterday. 
something else that caught my attention. I mean, again, there was intent behind this. Um, there are factors of three um, in the book, but there are factors of four in the movie. For instance, the monolith, when they find it on the moon, TMA-1, which it's named after the, the Tycho um, crater or whatever that they find it under, it's buried 30 feet in the book um, right. underneath the surface. In the movie, it's 40. In the book, they estimate it to be 3 million years old. Uh, in the movie, it's 4 million years old. So there was purpose behind changing threes to fours. And so that's why I was asking Tony. I was like, yeah. you like numerology. What did you, what, what do you think about that? What, what would be the underlying reasons to change that? That seems well, like an insignificant detail. You know, I remember when you asked me, it was off the top of my head, and I remember that three represents the Trinity, right? And uh, four is uh, represents Lucifer. And I, I did a little bit of searching after we got off the phone call. Now I'm partially right about. It. There's more to it, but I don't know why he would have changed it that way. Uh, but it's, I mean, why, why, why do that? I, don't know. I mean, and and again, you know, you mentioned something yesterday too that I didn't know. Um, originally in the, in the book, Arthur C. Clarke's 2001, they're the, they get a signal that goes to Saturn from the moon. And in the, and in the movie, it's Jupiter. Now you, what was the reason that you came across there, Mr. Anderson, where they, why they changed that? What was the excuse given why it wasn't Saturn? Yeah. And the other thing I want to touch on while we talk about this is the moon they selected on Saturn because it's an unusual moon, but to answer your first question, the reason um, that's documented why they made the change is, you know, Stanley Kubrick was mastering this art of front screen projection at the time. And that, that's when you watch a lot of documentaries or conspiratorial things about how he was involved in the moon landing. They're like, see, front, front screen projection, you can see the line, whatever. But he and the guy who was in charge of the artistic direction said they were having problems with the rings of Saturn. And that's why they moved it to Jupiter. And I'm like, uh, bullshit. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> Everything was difficult with this movie. Right. But the original moon in the book, and they call it something different. And I think it has to do with the Latin and the pronunciation. But if you look it up, it's called, and probably mispronouncing it. I, 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 Iopetus or something like that. And so it's kind of strange in the sense that similar to our moon, the same side of that moon always faces Saturn. So it's not really rotating. But what's also unusual about that moon is let's say you're looking at Saturn and from your perspective, that moon's on the right side. One side is very bright, like an order of magnitude brighter than when it circles around and then you look at the left. So it's kind of like this dual duality of light and darkness, light and darkness. So it was a really really kind of weird moon that they chose and they kind of described the properties of it in the book. I'm like, wait, is that, is that real? And sure enough it is, but yeah, they changed it from Saturn to Jupiter. And you've mentioned this, you did on the podcast we did when we were in eager Arizona, Tony about the Saturnian cults and that existed, right? Yes. I mean, we've talked about Jack Parsons and JPL, right? His involvement, Jack Parsons lab. Some people say, you know, kind Jeff of half kidding laboratory. And then, you know, Operation Paperclip. And so I've mentioned before that there's that space center in Huntsville, Alabama, because all the Germans wanted some forested area to look like Germany and say, oh, it's, it does not look like the motherland. So they ended up finding Huntsville, Air, Alabama. They, they scoped it out and ended up making Marshall Space Flight Center there. And so originally the rocket that Warner von Braun was working on, you know, Nazi scientist was called Juno five. And he's like, no, it's Saturn five. So right. it's just weird stuff like that, that just crops up all the time. Um, so that was the reason that they provided for changing it from Saturn to Jupiter. And I don't buy it. <laughs> Chris sent me a link, the Saturn death cult, SaturnDeathCult.com. Stanley Kubrick <laughs> and the Saturn death cult. It'd be weird if it was .org or .gov or whatever. Yeah, it's interesting. I hit upon this, by the way, just off of putting two and two together. I hadn't actually ever read anything on it. It was just kind of a gut instinct. Like, why did they change it? Oh, it must. And I immediately thought of David Icke. 
and uh, his expose is on the Saturnian cult. And it says on the, the, the website here, Stanley Kubrick and the Saturn death cult is the greater body of Stanley Kubrick's films an expose of a hidden elite obsessed with dark Saturnian sexual rights, pedophilia, and the planned ritualistic transmutation of mankind. So that's a great question. I think that's what we're talking about. <laughs> I think it's all of his movies are littered with it. And to me, yeah. that's quite the feat because one of the things I enjoy about Kubrick, it, and I, I think he knew about a lot of these things. And I think that's why he withdrew to a large extent because he was very reclusive. But all of his movies are very different. He tried to tackle different things. For 2001, A Space Odyssey, he was talking with Arthur C. Clarke and he said, I've never seen a good science fiction movie. And Clark was like, yeah, it's about time. And that's how that collaboration started. But he didn't do any more movies like that. I mean, think of Full Metal Jacket. Think of Lolita. Think of The Shining. I don't even like horror movies. I love The Shining. He just did ever, so many different um, yeah. you know, movies with different plots. But if you look at some of those things like pedophilia, they're always in there. I yeah. mean, think of Eyes Wide Shut when they go to the the rain. What I forget what it's called, but it's that um, – that store where you can buy outfits, right? Cause he has to find a cloak and a mask and it's, it's the rainbow, follow the rainbow. Remember like the escorts tell him at the beginning of the movie and the guy who owns it, he has like a really young daughter and he catches him with those Japanese guys. Right. And he gets mad. Oh, she's 15 or whatever it is. And then the next day he's fine with it. Yeah. It's like, she's a nice girl and it's talking to Tom Cruise and things like that. So he put those things, he littered them through all of his, all of his movies, regardless of what, kind of the underlying plot was of the movie. So yeah. I, I don't know. I could be reading into it too much though, too. No, he liked to hide stuff in his he work. Sure did. Yeah. Well, if you look at Dr. Strangelove and you mentioned earlier, Mr. Anderson, you mentioned Operation Paperclip. Uh, Dr. Strangelove is a Operation Paperclip figure. Right. You, you look at <laughs> he's trying not to give the the Nazi salute, you know, my hero, you know, everything. He's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, trying, yeah. he's trying to hold himself back. Um, you know, right. clearly a German. He, he nailed it. Clearly a German accent way ahead of his time. I and mean, people, I think, instinctually knew, you know, the end of World War Two, there was a race to get the Nazi scientists between the Soviets and the Americans. And we got a, we got a, we got a bunch of good ones, right? <laughs> we had all the best, we had all the best Nazi scientists. We had Werner von Braun. I mean, Disney, yeah. well, Disney had him in like shows and like, Oh, I know the, know the wonderful world of Disney. Look at this wonderful little Nazi. Werner von Braun. He's like, here's the V2 rocket, you know, the London <laughs> blitz. And I mean, Meanwhile, this guy was hanging the slowest slave during World War II above his factory as a, uh, as an example to the other slave labor, you know, you better, it's, it's you better speed up, you know, it's insane. And the other thing about, um, uh, Dr. Strangelove or how I fell in love with the bomb was there's a, a disclaimer. He had to put in the movie at the beginning saying the air force say, said this could never happen. That was a lie at the time. They actually changed protocols like four or five years later. So what actually played out in the movie could never happen, but at the time it could, but, the government made them put that disclaimer at the beginning was of the it movie anyway. Was, was it Dick Cheney made a phone call? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and W was reading books to children at the time. Yeah, I like changing the my pet goat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little, yeah, little my pet goat. A little symbology for you. Hey, let's talk about let's talk about the monolith. Yeah. 2001. So that's how the movie opens. You've got it's the different. New- Right in the book, you mentioned something too, Mr. Anderson, about it being uh, translucent. Yeah. Yeah. So they tried to play with that too. They say they did, and it was just too difficult. But in the book, it's it's a lot longer. You actually don't really hate Moonwatcher that much um, if you read the book because it's describe who Moonwatcher more... is. Oh, so Moonwatcher is the man ape who's he's kind of in charge. He's the uh, the son of his father died and he was kind of the leader of their tribe. He was called the old one never mentions him in the movie, but he passed. It doesn't really say how, from what I remember, but moon watchers, his son. And so he's kind of the leader of the tribe. So they always walk down from these caves. They go to the stream and there's another, you know, rival tribe and they, they get, get mad and hop up and down and scream at each other. But one time when they're going down there, this monolith appears and it mentions the dimensions in the book. It's uh, one, four, nine. That's the scale, which is like one squared, two squared, three squared. 
that's when they why when they discovered it on the moon they're like it had to have been intelligently created that on top of it being buried but yes it's translucent and so what ends up happening is it says in the book that they they can't like do anything with it they can't eat it they they try to eat it for a while and bite into it and they can't so they don't pay much attention to it but what it ends up doing over not like a day like a month or so it starts possessing each member of the tribe and it gives them tasks and it's like it's controlling them remotely and if they succeed in what they're doing they're rewarded with pleasure but if they fail at what they're trying to do they're um that they, they feel pain and it slowly starts filtering through but it's a translucent thing and they describe it almost like looking like a pyrotechnic show and so moon watcher's task is to like pick up rocks and hit targets with them and eventually it really likes moon watcher and it gets in his head and i thought this was funny too because they're starving right and they, they don't know how to eat animals yet or anything like that because they don't have the tools or instruments and that's what this monolith is trying to teach them how to do but he has this vision of these two really fat man apes in a cave and one's uh, apparently a female and one's a male and they have little children and they're just gluttonous and they have big bellies and it says one burps and it makes moon watcher like irate in his mind <laughs> the thought of it but um anyways so that's how they filter through and so they, they start making instruments they learn how to cut things they learn how to um, use stones and sticks as weapons and so how it culminates in the end is basically there's this leopard and they never can fight the leopard um but they always have encounters with it and it will drag out like somebody in the tribe and eat it and they really can't do anything about it so one day there's a, an antelope carcass that's just dead and they're like oh it's pulled up into the cave and moon watcher's cave is like at the top so they pull it up well guess who guess who knows that there's a dead antelope in there it's the leopard and so anyways they end up killing the leopard by hitting it and uh, stabbing it and then the next day moon watcher goes out to the stream and he has the leopard's head on a pike and just starts yelling at the other tribe and then starts beating him to death <laughs> and, and, and then it goes to you know outer space and um dr floyd going to the moon <laughs> but there's just a lot more detail there but yes these monoliths it says in the book were scattered all throughout the world trying to find intelligent life and give them tools necessary and information to develop. And that was kind of the point of it. You want to know something that a little uh, piece of trivia? Sorry, that was long. <laughs> no, that was awesome. No, was you, you were just reminding me of something. Arthur C. Clarke was approached by Universal Studios to write a screenplay for Jaws 2 in 1976 or whatever. And he did. And they rejected it. But there was supposed to be an object in the bottom of the ocean, almost like the mo the monolith kind of idea. And it was going to be uh, controlling the next great white shark that was attacking Amity. No joke. And this, like, they didn't call it, he didn't call it, describe it as a monolith, but it was like an orb of some kind that was on the, the bottom of the ocean floor. And it would be intelligently controlling Jaws in a Jaws 2. <laughs> And it just reminds what you were just telling me, like about how it's like taking control of this tribe and everything. Yeah. He did the same thing with his Jaws 2 screenplay. <laughs> it's weird. I, I don't, it doesn't really go anywhere, but they just, you reminded me of that. So yeah, I think really Clark liked this weird controlling mechanism thing in his stories, apparently. He, he did. And, um, I never really got into Jaws. I've always been more I'm of a, a Sharknado kind of guy. You oh, know? Sharknado. <laughs> you like the <laughs> Meg. He likes the Meg, ladies and gentlemen. I need a shark that'll eat Jaws. Yeah, uh, yeah. puss. <laughs> yeah. You know what's interesting about Arthur C. Clarke and uh, Mr. Anderson? I watched this, but the, the Sci-Fi did a uh, made-for-TV movie on Childhood's End. And now that... Yeah. You know, coupled with the fact that, you know, the the fact that he's got it where it's Moon Watcher, by the way, which, you know, uh, 2001 was was after he wrote Childhood's End, I believe. And that's if you're I hate to spoil it for you. It's only been out like 70 years, but uh, it's basically <laughs> it's basically you've got these extraterrestrials that come down and they don't reveal themselves. Uh, they take over the planet but in a kind of a way where nothing's allowed to happen that, that harms anyone 
And so they, you never really see them until the big reveal, which is later. And they all look like horned Satan. They look it's just the devil, <laughs> you know, and people like goat men with horns, you know, and it's just all the classic the w, devil yeah, image. Right? Yeah. yeah I mean, that's that's the big reveal, you know, that the, the aliens are. And and of and it even says in the storyline that that's why we have the image of the devil. That's because they're planet destroyers and stuff. So it, it's right. interesting that that kind of flows with. Then you have the the image of the monolith, which you know, and it's like duh, duh, it's this. You know, it's the it's the black mirror. We have the monolith. We walk around with one now. If you have you checked the dimensions, I'm curious. I mean, look <laughs> so. at it. Not gonna be it's, one for it's that. A, it's a. It's rewarding me, Mister. It's rewarding me <laughs> with pleasure me. or pain. With, uh, mostly pain. Yeah, mostly pain. <laughs> I can tell you that. Uh, but no, it's interesting. There's, there's so, there's so much. We don't. They don't. But by the way, uh, not to just be nostalgic for the past, which I mostly am. But um, they may. The, the, nobody would make something like this today. It's too smart. No. It's too smart. And there's so, there's something about the introduction of HAL, which I want to get to, which is artificial intelligence. I mean, you're going back to 1968. That seemed they they were working on it then. You know, a, a quick question. I know Chris probably knows this, and maybe you do, Mr. Anderson. I, I'm not picking one over the other, but I just thought of Chris because we've talked about ARPANET before. Oh yeah, ARPANET, which ARPA used to, is now it's DARPA, right? Uh, Defense uh, Advanced Research Advanced Project, Research. Yep. right? ARPANET is the internet. It wasn't Al Gore that invented it, folks. Sorry, I know Al Gore said he invented the internet, but it was uh, it's actually ARPANET. What <laughs> what year was that? Let me look was, it up. I think that was early 60s. So actually, I think it was close. You know, it's weird. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to look it up too because I thought it was closer to World War II of all of all times, too, which uh, kind of surprised me a long time ago because it was just utilized for military applications. You know, to for communications during. Uh, Battle time. Um, could be Korea even, maybe the 50s, but let's get it definitive here. Yeah, the U.S. Advanced Research Project Agency was the first public pack switch computer network. It was first used in 1969. All right, so, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of a different thing, but I thought that part of the Internet was utilized uh, even as far back as the 1940s, but that's for a different show. <laughs> But this is the same era. I mean, and if you're right, if you understand anything about how reality works, the real yeah. world, I mean, they the elite and the people, the, the adept, if you want to, and that's what Bill Cooper called them, uh, the mystery 30, school people. 30 to 50 years in the future. Beforehand. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. There's there's something to that. This is the the beginning of that technological shift. Yeah. 33 years out to 2001. That can't be an accident. Right. right? That he's, he's creating know. that. There is also some weird stuff in kind of that buffer zone of the story where Dr. Floyd, who's uh, the chairman of the National Council of Aeronautics uh, in America at the time, to some other weird things that they discussed in the book, at least. I mean, they're, they're mentioning like this problem with overpopulation a couple of times. Yeah. All the reporters know who he is, and they're asking, like, before he's launching, why he's going there. Is there another epidemic that's broken out in the moon? And ask him if they're going to have to quarantine again. Um, there's a universal credit card he has to use, like, when he's using the video phone to, to call his family. Uh, they talk about China is giving nukes to have-not countries that don't have the technical capability to have it, and they're giving it to them. I mean, I automatically thought of, you know, places like North Korea, right? And um, I don't know. They also need a medical certificate for travel. So there's all this stuff littered. I'm like, what in the world? Our last 20 years is in this one thing all wrapped up. Yeah, right. It was just a lot of things. And maybe if the last couple of years hadn't happened, it wouldn't have right. stood out like a sore thumb to me. But all of those things, I go, wow. So I, I don't know what they were doing. <laughs> Surprise is not maybe so. airplanes that are in, going into buildings at a certain point. Yeah, maybe on the moon. Maybe they're you know? 
Maybe they did some DMT and some of those trolls told them what was going to happen. I don't know. <laughs> the clockwork elves. <laughs> the dark elves. Yeah. You see Joe Rogan in the corner. <laughs> What's interesting, too, is that this film is not made for, like, regular people. Like, this isn't made for you to understand it. He purposely is making you not understand it. Like, when I was a kid, I tried to watch it. And I'm like, I don't. You know, because it's not your average sci-fi movie. It, it doesn't it's a slow burn for a kid. The, yeah. the plot, the plot line is weird. You're just not. This is it's it's so cerebral that you have to get to a certain place in life if you ever get there, uh, that you can go. Wow, I and I'm not saying I completely understand it. I just know, you know, I've been researching alternative history, and this is in my wheelhouse. But as a in my you know 15, 16, 17 years old, I. I didn't quite understand. I knew that it was important. I knew that it was a that it was an epic movie, but I just didn't like it. I'm like, I don't get it. Um, it takes Even the yeah. developing of the technology and in, uh, in terms of a motion picture too. That was a huge accomplishment. Oh, when you look at it now and really and good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's a it's an amazing film for 1960 for for now. But yeah. nobody would release anything like that now. Right. And I, I get tired of all the, the special facts in the form of, you know, com computer generated images. Like I think I was talking with somebody and Jurassic Park's coming back out in 3D. And I go, you know why that still looks good? I didn't know this for the longest time, but I think it's under like 25 seconds of that movie was actually the special effects were made on a computer. It was it was all robotics and things like that. That's why it still looks Practical so good. Effects. And I think why this movie still looks really good, too, um, in my opinion. Yeah, it's practical effects because they've done studies about um, how we perceive things when it comes to uh, viewing uh, films and television. If your if you your brain can detect whether or not there it's seeing something that's not physically there, but if you got like a stuntman in a costume or you have like you know a model like a whole you know like the original Star Wars 1977, all that was like models. That they, that they were filming right so it was something tangible and real so it so your brain like uh connects that oh okay this is a solid object that was on a set somewhere but when you have cgi flames and fire it does something like your brain like tell it pulls you out of the story it, it just does because your brain is telling you, oh, it's nonsense because it's uh computer generated effects and the only ones that uh, I have really utilized CGI and practical together are, you know, like Terminator 2. And that's going back to 1991. Right. Well, I, I, I'm sorry. I looked this up because I thought maybe that's a little too low. It was closer to six minutes over 120, but still not a lot. Um, but anyways, that, that's why I like this movie. It, and I'd probably be made fun of this, but it's like why I like Wes Anderson's movies like Asteroid City that came out. I mean, he uses models. Yes. And that's why it looks it looks interesting. Um, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I agree. Practical effects all the way, but it's not uh, it's not business savvy anymore. You just throw the CGI. OK, that's it. You know, they don't want to put yeah. the extra, extra time and resources into doing it properly, in my opinion. And I guess. You're yeah. Right. And the other thing that stood out to me with this, too, is, um, you know, researching it reading the book and looking into some of the relationships clark had is when this was i mean he was kind of a futurist too and he was actually called in by one i think it was a director at nasa but they said what do we do after the moon they were asking this guy like what's the next frontier what's the next exciting thing we should do and so i know there had to have been collaboration which gives again a lot of ammunition to the idea that Kubrick fake the moon landing. I personally don't believe that. Um, but I, I think it's interesting to discuss. But if you look at Voyager 1, what it actually did in the book in order to get to Saturn, Discovery, um, the, the name of the spaceship that they were on, yeah. it did a slingshot around Jupiter. That's exactly what Voyager 1 did to pick up steam, did a slingshot around Jupiter. I'm like, okay. Because <laughs> that was what, in the 70s, that not too far removed from when the movie and the book 
came out and I'm like, all right, there's definitely some collaboration going on, but well, why? Christ Christopher Nolan, the filmmaker that made, you know, like the dark Knight and things like that. He utilized that same uh, premise for interstellar with Matthew. Right. Right. It was Kip Thorne. And actually that, that movie, I was very hopeful when it came out because it was going to be like a very scientific movie. Yeah. And then Christopher Nolan's brother got a hold of this script and just butchered it. Jonathan, <laughs> I mean, yeah. they, they actually published a paper um, because they had so much computational power um, and they had scientists working on it, working, you know, with the studio, they actually published a paper on their gravitational lensing, um, which is basically the distortion of light around very, very massive objects and black holes. And that's one of the coolest things in the movie, but time I had dilation, high hope. Time dilation too. Yeah. Right. And so that they actually published a paper. I think there are like a hundred people on it, but yeah. <laughs> I thought that was kind of neat. And before, and I think, before Nolan was on, Spielberg was attached. So there you got another connection. There you go. <laughs> and I, I, I think the Interstellar took a lot from the ending in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Like that, that episode of going, you know, in deep space around those black holes. I really think they took a lot from what happened because what happens in the book is there's a monolith. And again, it has the same scaling dimensions as a smaller one, but it's like the size of a skyscraper. And it's on the moon and he just flies into it in his pod and it ends up being a stargate. And so um, in, in the movie, it's just kind of like floating there <laughs> around Jupiter. But um, anyways, I think we should get to how. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I was looking at while you were speaking. There was a, an article that Chris had sent me. We may go into a little just a little overview. Just because it's weird, Tony, because it was going on during the lockdowns. They popped up everywhere. I don't know if you remember the monoliths. That. Yes, yeah, I was going to yeah. bring that up. Um, the the monoliths were ubiquitous, and you haven't seen any since, right? So it's like this whatever and that a is. A lot of them kind of, disappeared too. They were usually in the desert somewhere and remote. I mean, yes. like, I mean, like you had you had to work to get that out there, and right, yeah. you know, like and, some of them, like the, remote parts of Utah, which is Utah, I mean, yeah. inhospitable, man. Yeah. So I don't know how they, I mean, I'm sure it's possible to get them out there, but I remember looking at some of these monolith stories going, somebody went out of their way to, or something it, to put them. It, there. They had to be very committed. I mean, you can't even drink in Utah. <laughs> these must've been sober individuals. <laughs> I think you can drink, but you just have to drink twice as much. I think they lower the alcohol content of their beer too. Oh, I've been there. It's really yeah, low. It's kind of like says, Oklahoma. Their IPAs, it says 3% at most. And I go, at most? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I just, think you have to, I think in Utah, just, you have to order food with your with your beer if you go to the bar. Well, yeah, I went so. with some guys and we, we were just chugging these things. And I was like, you feel anything? And he's like, no, I just feel hydrated. <laughs> <laughs> you just have these monoliths hold your coat, you know? Yeah. Well, no, but, sorry. Go ahead, Tony. No, but it was just weird that at the time that around the time that the uh, Pentagon decided that they wanted to start releasing these UFO Tic Tac videos, things like that during the lockdowns, we had this whole all these different reports about these monoliths coming and going because they a lot of them disappeared too without a trace, even though it had all this media attention on them. Very weird stuff. That's all. Sorry. It's it is really weird. Well, let's talk about Let's talk about how. And this again, this he becomes really like the center focus of the move, like three quarters through. You've got Hal, which is the you need the Hal 9000. Mr. Anderson, yes. this is the Hal 9000. Yes. And yeah, you you mentioned earlier in the show, which I it's a great nugget, which I did not know. In the book, Hal was developed in 1999, That's which right. make a lot of sense to what we're seeing, like in this in our timeline where you got artificial intelligence. And um, I mean, we just I heard the other day somebody was saying on a podcast, they're like, we're, we weren't supposed to even have this stuff that's going on now with chat GPT and others yeah. for about 15 years. And then all of a sudden it's just dumped on us. So there's there's an accelerant that's put on our timeline uh, however you want to slice it, we're we're in it now. You can't get this kid, the genies out of the bottle. We've got artificial intelligences here. How many times have these films and predictive programming warned us not to open, <laughs> not to open Pandora's box? But we did. I mean, when I was a kid, I was like, wow, 
I'm sure glad people are watching Terminator so they don't open up this AI thing. And they <laughs> yeah. just did. They just I mean, did. that's what that's what the elites love. The elites hate people. Let's just get down to the nitty gritty here. The elites hate everyday people. Yeah. And uh, like Yuval Harari with the World Economic Forum that says that we're hackable animals. Well, if we're hackable animals, then you're not a child of God. You're just uh, you're just a meat sack. Right. You're just uh, again, you're programmable yeah. and you don't you don't have a soul. So you're just a number. And that's the way that these people see us. And some, you know, the I, I think that there's a probably a level of elites that understand that we do have a soul and they have to keep us from things that are, we would transcend and uh, fulfill our God given talents and what we're supposed to do and actually self actualize. I think that's what um, a lot of the a lot of our our culture, our foods, our everything that our environment is meant to keep us away from doing that. Then you throw in artificial intelligence. This is, and, and again, you go back to 2001, the, the movie, and we we're talking at the beginning of the show, I'm quoting Frederick Nietzsche. Now, I've read throughout the years, I've, let, I've read Frederick Nietzsche, many quotes and biographies. I've always been interested in philosophy. One thing that his theme is in his, in his writing is that he, just exactly what I quoted at the beginning of the, of the show, he believed that man was a bridge. And not a goal. The goal was not man becoming something uh, better of himself, but leading to something else. And I've often thought years ago, I thought, well, he must be talking about AI. And it's weird now that we're having this conversation. This is just me on my own, like just thinking, I, I wonder if he's like vi visualizing technology of some kind where we create something outside of ourselves. And I'm not saying that's what AI is because I don't, I don't, first of all, I think AI in and of itself is not something that's useful. And uh, at worst, it's probably something that's demonic. So I don't welcome it into, I, I like technology by the way, but I think right now we're so separated from the sacred. Um, that's why, you know, you got brain fog and can't concentrate. When I say people couldn't make this movie today, I don't think they could. I don't think people are smarter than they were 30 years ago or 40 years ago or 50 years ago. Uh, that might explain the reason why we haven't been back to the moon, but it may, may not either. I'm, I'm open to suggestions on that, by the way. I'm, I'm more agnostic now. Yeah. Um, but there's something, and I want to throw it to both of you uh, as we, and we got just a little bit of time left. Let's talk about how, what is the meaning of HAL, the HAL 9000 and AI? And again, they, HAL deceives, is a, is a killer. Is a ruthless, cold, calculating thing, right? Because that's what computers are. They're not warm-blooded, uh, you know, they're not sentient, real things. They're not living. They're calculate. They're, they're calculators with intelligence. So, uh, Chris, I'll go to you, and then we'll let Mr. Anderson close this one out. Yeah, I mean, um, to be honest, I'm not really sure how much more I can add to uh, that you just uh, uh, talked about. I mean, I, I always thought it was weird how Joe Rogan kept pushing this on his show, on his, uh, on his program. He would talk about how um, we're our role in nature is to create the next thing, which is AI. And he would talk to Elon Musk about it. And, and he would just keep pushing this whole thing when he would have conversations with like people like Eddie Bravo. And he, he say it was almost like a, a butterfly or a caterpillar type thing that eventually they're a metamorphosis with, uh, or not, maybe not so much uh, of us, but like just the, um, just the, the blending of technology and, uh, bio biology or whatever, just, uh, yeah, and that that's our main purpose. I always felt that it was kind of a strange angle to keep pushing, you know. And he, I think he still even talks about that. But I don't think that we're meant to be, you know, melded together with, you know, robotics and yeah. AI. transhumanism. Trans, thank, thank you. Trans, the word transhumanism, right? right? Exactly. And, you're exact, and I remember that the conversations that Joe's had on his show, and especially with Elon Musk, which you know. You I'm sorry, him. folks. I hate to burst your <laughs> bubble. Elon Musk is not the richest man in the world. Uh, if you have a library card, you can go figure out who that is. It's not in the Fortune 500. I'm so sorry to break 
to dispel your uh, illusions, but that, that's no, he's not. But I remember, and I'm going to throw it to you, Mr. Anderson. But I remember Elon Musk, you know, oh, take his, your time, his dead eye. You know, he's like, I tried to warn them about the AI, but they would not listen. That's and, what I'm talking uh, about. And, yeah, yeah. and I'm like, so you're, so you're concerned. And then he's like, and then I'm going to start Neuralink. I'm like, well, that's, you know, that's the same, you know, so uh, Elon Musk is, um, <laughs> He's not the other side of the coin. He is. He's just the coin. Okay. He's another Gates um, and Zuckerberg type. That's he's he's filling a, a role right now. That's it. Uh, b- billionaires are, are not here to save you, ladies and gents. No. But, uh, Mr. Anderson, you you've done a lot of research on this clearly, and and he went out and did the hard work and reread the books, and uh, I appreciate oh, all that. And this has been it's a lot a lot of great information you're dropping here because uh, again, there's there, we. I said at the beginning of the show before we started, before we hit record, just for everybody to know, I said this could be a five, six hour show because there's just so much here. What we're trying, we're giving you the overview so you can go and look at it and start looking at there's just the intricacy of, of the what Kubrick left behind, what we believe, I believe that he left behind for people to see if you're going to pay attention. And uh, I think uh, one of those people who's paid attention is is Mr. Anderson. What, what do you think about Hal and then? You know, I definitely want to oh. get your closing thoughts on all of this. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, the, the book, I would say to anybody interested in reading it, it's a very easy book to read because it's so enjoyable. Um, and also, when I think of Elon Musk, I always think of Kyle Dunnigan doing him, that impression where he's like, built a built a robot, Tesla, came sentient, robot started eating people. Got a little weird. Got a little weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a really funny bit. Um, but as far as how it's concerned, it's, there, there was – a few differences I noticed between the the movie and him being like, as you described, cold calculated killer in the book, he knows he's starting to make mistakes, but he doesn't tell anybody because they're minor mistakes. Um, and he's so arrogant because he always says, you know, how the heuristic algorithm computer that they designed that we've never made a mistake. And so then he, he really starts kicking it into reverse and trying to clean his clear his tracks and clean everything up. Once he says something's wrong with the satellite they're using to communicate with earth and they take it in and nothing's wrong. And so the scientists at earth and mission control are the ones that say, okay, maybe just turn him off and we'll use the one that we have on earth to do, you know, use it as a guidance system. So the reason he got rid of pool was because he's trying to, you know, again, clean up his mess and not look like he was making mistakes. So it wasn't as cold and calculated, but still, you know, terrible. But there are a lot of weird things about how, I mean, uh, Chris, you sent an article about it and it made sense. Is this the one I'm thinking of? (laughs) He was ambiguously gay. And so um, I can kind of see that in the book. It talks about Bowman and Poole, who are the two members of the crew who are awake, um, who aren't, you know, in suspended animation like the rest of the crew and they have girlfriends back home because they're not married but as they get further and further away and it takes longer and longer to communicate with them as they expected before they left i mean that relationship just tapers off so they actually made a room the scientists made like a room and it doesn't go into depth about it but it is to relieve them of any impulses they might feel and i'm like wait a minute is this like a sex robot room mm-hmm. <laughs> it mentions yeah, it in, yeah <laughs> the champagne it mentions that in the book and i'm like well if they were doing that and how was watching i mean that's weird and but you know even in the book and in the movie as well how is very interested in bowman like oh your art is getting very good you know <laughs> And things like that. So I thought that was kind of weird because it was a little ambiguous and it gets back into that, you know, like you were talking about, and then, you know, maybe some gender dysphoria for the robot. I don't yeah, I mean, know what gender is. A, what gender is a right. robot? Right. Exactly. So binary. It's <laughs> <laughs> good, Chris. Too easy. <laughs> too easy. He was also yeah. a conspiracy theorist, too, by the way, Hal. He was a conspiracy theorist too. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. It was just, I think there are a lot of dangers because he goes berserk and then he's trying to, you know, again, clean up his mass. And so he starts in the book, Bowman wants to 
bring everybody up from suspended animation manually without house control and how argues with them, puts up a big fight. And he's like, I'll turn you off if you don't let me do this. So he says, okay, I'll let you do it. And then he opens up the doors and the entire um, spaceship depressurizes and everybody dies. And then it kind of traces back the, the same way in the movie where he goes up there and Hal starts singing Daisy. <laughs> Right. <laughs> two plus two is five point one 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 one. He's removing the memory drives. Um, so it's like, in my opinion, humans tried to create something that had this perfect intellect. But what actually ends up happening to Bowman, and it's it's pretty much as psychedelic as it is in the movie when he goes through the Stargate and he enters into that hotel room that this intelligence created for him. And he sees himself birthed as a child and he sees the monolith at the foot of the bed and he becomes a star child. And I, I don't know, it kind of ends in this obscure way where it seems like there's a, a nuclear warhead that's going to be detonated on earth and he makes it explode in the sky. So he reaches like some higher level of consciousness and ability. I mean, it gets, it gets strange in the end, but still enjoyable. Well, I was just thinking something we touched on yesterday too, Mr. Anderson, before we got off the phone, which was uh, the the movie Moon with Sam yes. Rockwell. Yeah. And yes. it has a howl like robot in there. It's played by Kevin Spacey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, you, you have to know this. You know he was Chris. watching Sam Rockwell <laughs> take off his clothes. He, he did a good job in that. Yeah. Not Spacey. I'm talking Rockwell. Yeah. Yeah, Brad. he did. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to. So what's the was this something how related to, to Arthur C. Clarke? I'm looking into it. I forgot to do that today. Uh, not that I know. Of. Very well could have been. Is it? It's an adaptation, but they had. And I want to say that it's it's like a how like the, the, the AI yeah. in there. Yeah. No, and I it's played by Kevin Spacey. <laughs> it's from 2009 very well done film oh, it's good no it's no he's he's Gertie his name is Gertie yeah but great. it's but it's like how like it's like a it's 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 an AI but it's in like that same kind of it's how inspired with the yeah. red light you know oh yeah interesting I'm not seeing any uh, Clark connections though no I didn't yeah. I couldn't find any but it's interesting but it's the moon which is you know <laughs> yeah Somebody's paying attention. Somebody was. Exactly. Like we still have Mr. Anderson. Oh, he's was, gone. Oh, did oh, we he... did we lose him? No, he's here again. I was making sure. Sorry about that. Uh, I no, hit the no wrong problem. tab. <laughs> I was looking it up. It, was was like, do, we have a, do we have a Kevin Spacey fan? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done with you. Hey, see Bill Cosby himself on the way out. Um, I, I'm like chef in South Park. Once you hit it too close to home, I'm out, guys. <laughs> Little, uh, it's just the Scientology connections keep adding up over here. Um, well, gentlemen, I I I enjoyed this talk, and I get, again, we we there's no way we could cover everything, folks. And we appreciate you uh, tuning into Paratruther and downloading and sharing the show. Uh, these are our little our little conversations, our labors of love for the 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 genre of alternative history, um, looking into these um well i think these hidden corners of of reality i i like to i like to to bring my my good friends in for these kind of shows and and let's just have a conversation so i i hope everybody's enjoyed the show um i've got uh ideas for new paratruthers so be sure and subscribe to the channel anywhere podcasts are found uh i just put out a new Arterburn radio transmissions pretty much every friday i've got a new show coming out so uh be sure and, and subscribe to the channel uh, Arterburn.news is my website, and I know uh, the great Chris Graves, uh, researcher for Don Jeffries, and now he's been on every podcast that exists, uh, and he does about three quarters of the podcast in circulation. That's Chris Graves. Uh, tell people where they can find you. You can find me on Twitter at cgravesmaskguy, and uh, just check uh, check out uh, Tom Tom Cooper and myself on uh, conspiring with Mister Cooper. And uh, right here, Paratruther, and that's about all the shows I'm going to be doing uh, for the time being. So well, we're cer certainly proud to have you, my friend. Thanks for doing the show. And Mr. Anderson, I know that you don't want people to find you because you don't want Agent Smith to know where you live. 
Um, and I completely understand that, but uh, I want to say thanks for all your hard work and research on this to make this show possible. And again, it's just a primer, just a, it's a jumping right. off point for people. And I think we covered a lot. You had some things that I hadn't even thought of before, um, but it's, this is, it's all, this is too weird to be a coincidence and I uh, appreciate all your, uh, your research and, and your knowledge. Oh, well, th thank you for having me. It's always good time with you and Chris on the show and yeah. this stuff's easy. And like you said, this is by no means exhaustive. It's just some, some ideas to fiddle around with. Um, and there are so many other movies that we can do in the future with Kubrick too. Um, That's right. You know me, I love Kubrick. So. I know you do. And we yeah. will do more of those. And so that's uh, what I designed this show to be, which is just a, it's a series of conversations and it's real. And we want to, we want to ask the big questions and delve into those, like in those, uh, those dark corners of history. So I appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, we will have some new shows dropping soon. So again, share, subscribe, and uh, tell us what you think. Go give us a review. It'll help us out. It'll help the algorithms. They're not, they're not our friends. And so I uh, appreciate everybody. I'm going to take Beans the Brave. She's is she has been telling me for the last 20 minutes. She's not. She's ready to go. We're out here at the Main Street Mall in Denison, Texas, where I've got my satellite location for Wise Wolf Gold and Silver. Which I will say before I close, if you think you can't afford gold and silver, you're crazy. You got to go to Wolfpack.gold and go check out even as low as the Lone Wolf program, fifty dollars a month. We find uh, mostly silver, but we can get gold in your package too. 50 bucks a month and we source it, send it directly to your door. We even have wolf cub now for kids. It's $35 a month and uh, lots of great lessons to learn on, on coins and currency in the history of the monetary system. And we've got a, a whole series of things coming out on that. So wolfpack.gold helps fund shows like this and uh, we appreciate you. So see you next time. And in the information war, be a paratruther. <laughs>